Hey, good morning, Harvest. How we doing? Good, good. Hey, do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Jeremiah 17. We're going to be in the book of Jeremiah. If you're new here or visiting, my name is Calvin. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. So thankful that you are worshiping and hanging out with us this morning. And uh, we are in the third week of a series that we have called A Christian Worldview. And kind of our heartbeat for this fall is to reestablish, hey, what does it mean to view the world through a Christian lens? What are the things that we actually believe? What are the things that we hold on to? How does being a Christian shape our worldview? And a couple of weeks ago, I was here and we talked about God, what the Christian worldview is regarding God. He is supreme in all things. Uh, last week, my dad was here and he talked about man. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? And, and then what is our identity in Christ as followers of Christ? What does the Christian worldview believe about us? And this week, um, we are going to look at a Christian worldview in regards to sin. And uh, here's what I would say. Um, I tried really hard, but it's impossible to uh, make a message on sin feel good. Right? It's hard to make a message on sin feel light and airy and funny, and uh, it's just one of those messages that um, we're going to have to get after some things this morning, and, and the Lord is going to, I am praying, pierce our hearts with his power. And uh, one of the things I've always um, loved and appreciated about all of you and being a part of this church is it feels like whoever's preaching, um, there is a hunger in, in our church to say, hey, let's just open God's word, let's look at what it says, and then let's submit our lives to it. Give me the good, the bad, and the ugly, and let's get after it. There's always been a really sweet humility to say, we just wanna know what God's word says and, and what we need to do with it. And I think that's made this place special. So if you're ready for a, another message where we get after some stuff this morning, can you just say, I'm ready? ready. Okay, I'm gonna give you another chance at that because only about half of us are ready. So, um, you know, doors are in back, I guess, if you wanna leave. That would be awkward to leave right now, but you can. Um, if you're ready to get after things this morning, just say, I'm ready. ready. Awesome, awesome. So excited for what God has for us. And uh, here's what I wanna do before we jump into the text. One of the things we're doing in this series a lot is we're comparing and contrasting um, this idea of what a Christian worldview is with the view of our culture and of our age. And, and did you know that our, our culture has a worldview and it has a name? Uh, the name for that is secular humanism. And, and the culture of, of America, kind of the predominant worldview is this idea of secular humanism. And what secular humanism is, it's this. This isn't in your notes, but uh, I put the definition up and you can take this if you're writing notes. It's this. The belief that humanity is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without the belief in God, okay? This is the predominant worldview of our culture. And here's the idea. It's the idea that man sits at the highest authority. There is no God, there is no eternity, there is no ultimate authority, it's just us. We're here because of evolution, we're here because of chance, you are here because you're Parents uh, had decided to have a baby and you won the, the genetic race and, and that's all that there is. The, the earth is a result of the Big Bang. It's just us. So what the highest level of authority is, is what do we know? What do we think? What do we believe is right? What can we know through science or human reasoning? It is by definition an anti-God worldview. In fact, if you look up secular humanism, in every video or every definition that you'll find, there is this explicit statement, we don't believe in God. 
And this is the worldview of our culture, and if you look for it, you'll find it everywhere. Um, This worldview is being preached to our kids all the time. Do you know that? My kids have gotten into Disney Plus over the summer. There's like a million shows you can stream on Disney Plus, and every episode of every show they watch, there's this common theme that good is found in you, right? And if you can unlock your potential, if you can unlock this, this hidden value in you that everything you need, that what you need to be happy and to have life and to have joy, it's all found in you, and no one can tell you who you are or who you aren't, but that your hope for life is found inside of you. This summer, my boys, they got really into Space Jam 2, all right? So we had to watch Space Jam 1 with Michael Jordan, the actual greatest player ever to play basketball. And then we had to, um, you know, watch the one with the imitator, LeBron James. And, And my boys got really in, I'm not laughing, I believe this with all my heart, um, they got really into Space Jam, and they wanted the, the jersey, and they were watching the movie, and then my boys came to me one day, and they just decided, they're like, hey, Dad, we've decided we're going to be NBA players. And I'm like, I got some tough news for you, boys. I'm like, your mom is 5'6", your dad's 5'10", on a good day, and I've been described as a lot of things. Freak athlete has never been one of them. And they're like, no, 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 we're going to be NBA players. We like practiced for two hours today in the front, you know, in the driveway. Uh, we put in the work and, and, and this is what we want to do and we're going to do it. And I'm like, guys, that's just not in the cards. And my six-year-old Judah goes, well, what if I really believe that I can? And I'm like, son, all the belief in the world is not going to make you 6'5 with a 6'10 wingspan. Like it's just not happening. No matter how hard or bad you want it, there are limitations to you, but it's that worldview that you can do whatever you want. No one should tell you what you can't do. Um, This same worldview is preached to us too every single day. Why is the self-help industry billions and billions of dollars? Because this is the only life we have. We need to become the best version of ourselves, and, and, and our ability to live our best, most fulfilled lives rests on our shoulders, right? Why is fitness a billion dollar industry? Because we have one life, we have one body, we need to look as good as we can, feel as good as we can. That's what's going to give us value because there is no value after death. It's just right now, right? When we look at marriage trends in our country, right? Why are people waiting longer and longer to get married? Because in a secular humanist worldview, the goal of life is not to love and serve and give yourself to other people like a family would demand. It's go have the most fun, have the most experiences, live the best life you can, and don't get locked in to relationships that are going to hold you back. We see this everywhere. Secular humanism is the belief that we are capable of providing ourselves life, joy, and fulfillment outside of God, and that man is ultimately the hope for mankind. So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to read Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10, and I just want this idea of secular humanism in the backdrop as I read this. Here's what it says. It says this. It says, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. And he does not fear when the heat comes, for his leaves remain green. And he is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his way 
ways according to the fruit of his deeds. Okay, I want you to look at verse five again. See what God says. He says, thus says the Lord. So this is the Lord speaking. He says, cursed is the man who trusts in man and who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Doesn't verse five perfectly lay out secular humanism? Like, could you think of a more perfect definition of the culture of our age than what God says in Jeremiah 17, 5? Curses the man who trusts in man and who makes his flesh his strength. Like, isn't that wild to you that 3,000 years ago, God can perfectly spell out the culture that we're living in today? Maybe we aren't as brilliant or unique or as evolved as we think. Maybe the issue with man has always been the issue with man that we want to lean on ourselves. And what God is saying is that this mentality, this worldview is sinful and it's not leading anywhere good. So what I wanna do is, is I wanna flip the passage around a little bit and I wanna start with what does God want for us? What is God's ideal for us in life? And we can find that in verse seven. Look at it with me. It says this. It says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord who makes, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, and he does not fear when the heat comes, for his leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. All right, so we see three things about God's ideal for us there. Here's the first. What God wants for everyone in this room this morning, he wants you to have a life that's marked by life and strength. He wants your life to be filled with strength. We see it right here in, in verse seven. He is like a tree, right? That's a, 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 that brings up a picture of something that is strong, that sends out its roots by the stream, that, that it is rooted to a never-ending source of water. It is healthy, it is vibrant, it is full of life, and, and it lives with strength. God is saying, put your hope in me and I will be faithful to strengthen you and to provide for you everything you need. In a lot of ways, this is the picture of the Garden of Eden. Right, God set man and, and woman in the garden and, and they walked with God, they were near to God, they had an intimate relationship with God. God gave them tasks and responsibility, but God also provided for them everything they needed and their hearts were content in one another and in the Lord. God's saying, that's what I want your life to look like. Look at the second thing we see. God wants for us tangible peace. It says, and it does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought. Okay, and I need you to see this. Notice that drought comes for everyone. Notice that the heat comes for everyone. And what this passage is saying is that following God, loving Jesus, does not give us a hall pass on suffering or trials. He, he says the drought's gonna come for everyone, the heat's gonna come for everyone, but what is different is God promises to be near to us and to be with us and to give us peace in those trials. Man, I wish I could tell you otherwise. I wish I could tell you that if you just love God enough, if you just trust Jesus enough, everything's gonna go well for you. You're gonna be healthy, your bank account's gonna be healthy, your relationships are gonna be great, but the problem is, is Jesus promises the opposite. Right, Jesus gathers his disciples together at one point and he says, listen, in this world, you will have trials. You will have difficulties, you will have problems, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God's never promised us an escape from suffering. Listen, we're gonna talk about this more in a minute. We live in a broken world that's been devastated by sin. 
And none of us in here are immune from the effects of sin, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever that may look like. But what God's saying is, is I will be with you and I will um, be close to you and your faith will flourish. And listen, this isn't a theoretical thing. I've been hanging out with a family in my small group this week who, who's walking through an issue and a circumstance. It's not their own fault, it's the result of, of others' sin, but their life is defined by chaos right now. In every way, a deep trial, chaotic life, chaotic relationships, and guess what they say to me over and over again as I check in on them? Man, God is so faithful. God is so good. I feel so full of the Holy Spirit. God is doing miraculous things in, in my life. He's showing up. He's giving wisdom. He's providing strength. He's giving me joy in the midst of chaos. And I've seen this story play out hundreds and hundreds of times in the life of this church. He says, when you, God says, when you put your trust in me, I will provide real tangible peace. Then here's the uh, third thing we see for God's ideal for us that our lives would be marked by enduring fruit, that over the test of time and over the seasons of life, our life would be marked by enduring faithfulness to Christ, that we wouldn't be hot and cold, we wouldn't be in for a while, then out for long seasons, then back in, but that there would be a consistency and enduring fruit. We see that where he says, and it will be not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. This is what Jesus talks about when he gave the parable of the four soils. You know what that story is? Jesus said a farmer goes out and he scatters seed. And the seed is the gospel and it goes, it lands on four different soils. And some of the soils is rocky ground. It never takes root, it's never accepted. Some it's, it lands on soil but it's eaten up by the birds right away. On other soil it starts to grow but then the thorns kind of raise up and choke it out. And then the fourth soil is a good soil where, where the, the seeds take root, they grow, and they produce enduring fruits. And what Jesus is saying is, is a lot of people are going to hear and are gonna respond different ways to the message of salvation. And by the way, I've seen all of these play out in our church. Just last week, I was preaching in Grand Haven. I made a point, three or four people get up and walk out of the room. Hard soil instantly rejected, I don't want to hear this. I've had people where, man, they, they, they start to grow, they, they come, their life's in chaos, they give their life to Christ, and for three months, six months, a year, there's real growth and real victory, and, and then they start to chase other things. And other things take priority in their life, and no longer do they have time for small group or church or, or, or following the Lord, they pursue other things, and the cares of this world choke out their affections for Christ. And then I can look at many of you and see through the difficulties of life, the trials of life, the stages of life, and enduring love and faithfulness to Christ. God says that's what I want for all of us, that we would endure and provide enduring fruit in our lives, that we would flourish. That's what God wants for each and every one of us, but look what sin does to this picture. Jump up to verse five. Here's what it says. It says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and who makes uh, his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. And in these three verses, we're going to see three consequences of our sin. Here's the first one. Sin always brings brokenness. Look at verse five again. Cursed is the man 
uh, who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. And a couple things I want you to see under this point is first, you need to understand that God views sin as a heart condition, not just actions. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is I think so often when we think of sin in our life, we think of the bad things that we do. Oh man, I told a lie. I lost my temper and my mouth went south very, very quickly. I got in a fight. We think of the sinful actions we commit, but that's not how God necessarily views our sin. He views it as a heart condition. He says their heart has turned away from the Lord. So what that means is when we come to our sin, we can't just focus on the actions, but we've got to do the hard work of understanding the sin that lives in our hearts and why those actions are flowing out of our hearts. So here's an example. If you tell a lie, right, it's easy to be like, all right, I gotta stop lying, right? That's just dealing with the action. The harder work is, what caused me to lie? Have I made what others view of me or my perception to others such an idol in my life that I will do anything to get the approval of others, even if I have to lie, cheat, steal, or fake it? And I just want other people to see me in this way because truly I'm worshiping myself and how others view me. And rather than being humble and honest and admitting that, that, that I'm fallen and not perfect and putting my identity in the gospel, I'm putting my identity in what others think, right? That's the heart issue that we've got to root out. We've got to re-identify with Jesus Christ, right? Maybe it's anger, right? And it's, man, I, I got angry and I lost it at my wife and kids, Right, it's really easy to be like, well, stop getting angry. And you're looking like, yeah, I've tried that. It doesn't work, right? Well, it doesn't work because there's a deeper heart issue. And that heart issue is, is why do you believe that you are the sovereign ruler over the universe and others have to bow down to you? Right, why is your anger, why does it well up when people let you down or disappoint you? Why do others have to live up to your expectations? Aren't you created to love and serve and model the patience and kindness of God to others and the grace when others fall short? You see, there are deep heart issues that lead to our sin. Here's the second thing we need to see is that sin devastates our lives. Look at verse six. It says, he is a shrub in the desert and he shall not see any good come. Do you see what God's doing here? He's comparing and contrasting two plants. One is a tree that is planted by water that is strong, that doesn't cease to bear fruit. And the other is a shrub in the desert that shall see nothing good come. So to help us with this, I brought some props. And uh, something happened to my wife over COVID where she got really into to planting plants in our house. So I don't know if other women are doing this. I don't know if this is a trend or not, but like we've got a bunch of plants inside our house. And uh, this is one of them. And uh, this is actually, this looks good, doesn't it? Like if you were to see this, you're like, wow, Mary's really good at planting things. She's crushing it. This is healthy. It looks vibrant. It's not a tree, but it kind of looks like a tree. It's got like uh, um, big branches and, and a stump. And, and so here's what I want. This can be the picture of God's ideal for us. He's saying, this is what I want your life to look like, bearing fruit, green, healthy, crushing it, okay? So this is in our house. And this is a true story. Another plant that as of yesterday was hanging up in our house on our wall was this guy right here. Not as great, right? Now, um, here's the thing. 
my wife's in Detroit with Bo for a uh, soccer tournament this weekend, and she doesn't know that I brought these plants in, and she'd probably be horrified if she did know. So if you could, like, refrain from, like, the funny email or Facebook message about making fun of her planting skills, I would greatly appreciate that. That would be good for my life. But um, I think this represents a shrub in the desert, right? Like, this thing is dead, and there is nothing good coming for this thing. doesn't matter how much TLC you give it. It's like, it just disintegrates. Right, so this thing is going in the garbage after today, um, and then I might be going on the couch. We'll figure out that um, in a little bit. But that's the, the picture of what sin does to our life. He's saying when we choose to sin, we're taking what God wants for us, health, vibrant strength, and, and we are going to a shrub planted in the desert that shall see no good thing come. That sin devastates our lives in relationship. Church, look here. You and I fundamentally do not deal with our sin with enough urgency. Do you know that? Every time you and I choose to sin, choose to allow sin to remain in our hearts undealt with, we are choosing devastation to our lives, physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual. And yet we like to coddle our sin, we like to live with it, we like to compartmentalize things, and what God's saying is, no, 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 I see and this is what you're choosing for your life. Okay, here's the second one. It's this. It leads to spiritual dehydration. Sin leads to spiritual dehydration. So look at verse 6. It says this. It says, He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness. See what that represents? It, first of all, the wilderness always represented being away from God's presence in the Old Testament. Remember when the Israelites refused to go into the promised land because they didn't trust that God would protect them? What was their punishment? You're gonna wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You're not gonna be where God wants you. You're going to be away suffering in the wilderness. And what verse six says is, is no, no, you're going to be in the parched places, the dry places, the thirsty places. And, and there's an actual physical dehydration spiritually that happens because of our sin. And I need to pause here for a moment and make an important point because I think this is an issue where you and I are being discipled and adopting a secular worldview even without realizing it. You see, secular, secular humanism, by definition, it has to reject the spiritual, right? There is no God. There is no spiritual realm. There is no eternity. All of that is nonsense in the secular worldview. So every time there is an issue in our lives, it has to be a physical problem because that's all that there is, is the physical universe. So the way our secular worldview would view all things like anxiety, depression, fear, that's a mental health issue that can only be solved through therapy or medication or a physical healing. Now, I, I need to pause here because I know what's going to happen, and, and I want to be very, very clear with you. Um, is mental illness a real thing? It absolutely is. In, in fact, a Christian worldview would demand that it is because we live in a broken and fallen world, and our bodies and minds are not immune to that brokenness. And I know many people and have many friends that have real, diagnosable mental illnesses that need to be treated with medicine to provide stability. It's a real thing. So you can miss me with the email that Cal doesn't believe in science or mental illness, all right? Not even going to read it. But here's another thing that I think a Christian worldview would make us admit is that we are very, very quick to run to physical solutions for spiritual problems, aren't we? 
that because we're discipled to neglect the spiritual, that often what is going on in this spiritual hydration in our life is leading to other things. And if we only think physical, and if we only run to physical solutions for that, we're actually just papering over the cracks and not experiencing the healing that God would have for us. Because it's a spiritual, it's a heart issue that's causing these things in our lives. So I want to be as transparent as I possibly can right now. There have been seasons in my life where where I feel anxiety just welling up in my chest. And it sits right here. Right? Many of you shake your head like this at me because you know exactly what that feels like. And I've even had those moments where I can't breathe and my heart's beating through my chest and I think what would probably be diagnosed as a panic attack happens and it feels like I'm dying. Okay, and in those moments when that happens, I've got to ask myself some really difficult questions. The first thing I have to ask is, there, is there a physical reason for this? Is there a physical reason that this is happening to me? I remember a few years back, I had been asked to speak at a camp in New Mexico. So I traveled across the country with my wife and girls, um, led a camp there for five days, preached about seven or eight times in those five days, and then traveled back across the country, got here for the weekend, preached on the weekend, and I remember it was um, Sunday afternoon, kind of right as I was getting ready to kind of wind down for the weekend, and I got a call from Taylor, our youth pastor at the time, and his voice was panicked. And he goes, Cal, next weekend is Camp Harvest for our high school camp, and both speakers just backed out. We got a speaker, he backed out. We got a backup speaker, they backed out. Both had family health issues that they couldn't come to camp for, and we have camp tomorrow, and I don't have a speaker. What are we going to do? And I'm like, well, I just preached at a camp last week. I can use that same message. We'll go make it happen. We'll make it work. So I went straight to Camp Harvest, preached there all week, preached another five or six times, and uh, everything went great. Camp was awesome. It was so fun hanging out with the high schoolers. That last night, we had a a late night session. We had a bunch of students make decisions for Christ. It was a great time. I left at about 10.30 at night, just so on fire for what God was doing, feeling amazing. And I had about an hour drive home between camp and our house where we live in Spring Lake, and about 20 minutes into the drive, I can't breathe. And it feels like my vision's going a little bit, which is scary because I'm driving 70 miles an hour down the road. I kind of pull to the side and I call Mary and I'm like, Mary, am I having a heart attack? What's going on? And Mary goes, Cal, you're not having a heart attack. You're fine. She's like, what you need to do is you need to come home and you need to sleep. And she goes, Cal, in the last eight days, you preached 14 times and traveled across the country twice and you've led two camps. Like you've been running on adrenaline and now that it's over, your adrenal glands are crashing and it's causing your body to spiral. There's a physical reason that this is going on. So guess what I did? I got home and I slept for about 12 hours and laid super low the next day, felt better, felt great, my body was restored. There was a physical reason why that was happening. All right, there have been other times in my life where I feel this anxiety well up and there's not a physical thing that I can point to. So then I've got to ask the difficult question, is there something going on in my heart that's leading to spiritual dehydration and this fear and anxiety or worry that I feel welling up inside of me? So guess what I do? I talk to my wife. Mary, you know me better than anyone else. What do you see in me? What is there sin in my heart that's unconfessed? I talk to my small group. I talk to guys in my life who I trust. I'm open and honest. Here's everything going on in my life. And here's the amazing thing. Every time I've done that, God has been faithful to reveal some things where either there's unconfessed sin 
or, or there's areas where I'm putting my identity outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ and my identity sliding back into my performance or the performance of the church or how people perceive me and that is sucking the joy out of my life. It is leaving me in a place of spiritual dehydration and when I repent of that and confess of that and put my identity back in who God says I am and what Jesus has done for me, I can feel that anxiety release. Are there physical reasons for it? Absolutely. But in our culture, in our day and age, we're really, really good at at neglecting the spiritual and just running to the physical. Does that make sense? Okay, here's the third thing that sin does is it leads to isolation. Look at verse six again. It says, he shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. You see that idea that it's uninhabited. No one else is with you. And the reality is, is that sin isolates us from God and from others. When we live with unconfessed, hidden sin in our life, guess what that means? We, we, we believe, man, if people really knew who I was, they wouldn't accept me. And if I really was transparent, if I really came forward, I'm going to be rejected, I'm not going to be shown grace, then we believe the lie that no one knows us, that we would never truly be loved, that we'd be rejected by God and others, and we isolate ourselves, and we put our heart in this place, which is a very, very close picture to hell, because if you remember, a few months ago, we talked about hell, and we said that hell is isolation, not just from God, but from one another. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to get really, really practical with us right now. And I want to talk about three attitudes that I've seen be prevalent in our church of of sin um, that will keep us in the desert. These are three attitudes that if you want to make sure that your life continues to look like this, keep moving forward with those attitudes. Here's the first one. Um, I'll never change. This is an attitude that will for sure keep you in the desert. I've always been this way. There's certain things in my life that I'm always going to struggle with. People don't really fundamentally change. I've always struggled with this. My dad struggled with it. His dad struggled with it. It's always been a problem in my life. It's going to be a problem till I die. Um, I can't have victory over this sin issue. Here's what I would say. To believe that is to deny the transforming work of Jesus Christ in our lives, isn't it? Like think about all of the examples from Scripture. Think of Paul. Paul was an arrogant, self-righteous man whose hope was in his national heritage and in his intellect. And he hated Christians, he hated Jesus, he hated Christianity. God saved his life, transformed his heart, and he was the greatest missionary for Christ of all time and would die a martyr's death because Jesus saved and transformed him. Peter was a coward. Right When Jesus was betrayed, Peter bailed on Jesus. He ran away. He denied ever knowing Jesus. Just a few weeks later, after seeing the risen Christ, Peter is shouting from the rooftops in Jerusalem during Pentecost that the Messiah was Jesus and the only way to salvation was through Christ. Peter would be the leader of the church and crucified upside down because of his love and boldness for Jesus. Right? Think about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a man who betrayed his country because the bottom line was the only thing he cared about. Whatever I can to make money, whatever I can to have a comfortable life, whatever I can to have an advantage over others, I'll do it. Then he meets Jesus and his heart is changed and his life is saved and he says, I'm gonna give it all away. And if I've taken some from people, I'm going to give back more because my life is not about what I have, it's about honoring and loving the Lord and being a light for him. 
And by the way, I've seen this time and time again with people in our church. Marriage is healed, lives transformed, generational sin broken because of the power of Jesus Christ. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Paul says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Right, how many of you guys like the God at Work videos we show at our church? Right, aren't those just testimonies to the transforming power of the Lord in our church? To deny that in you is to deny God's power in your life. It will keep you in the desert. All right, here's the second attitude that will keep you in the desert. It's not my fault. And here's the very um, clearest way I could say that is there's many of us in this room who are very, very comfortable um, blaming others for our sin and always being the victim and never taking responsibility for the things we've done. This is the attitude of the unrepentant. And I would say that I have sat in marriage counseling cases for two hours where you have couples who are just engaged in trench warfare. And all they do for two hours is they lob grenades at one another. Everything that's wrong in the marriage is your fault. And you've let me down. You, you've been a garbage spouse. You, you've failed me. You haven't lived up to your promises. Grenade, grenade. And on the other side, no, it's all your fault. And, and like you're sitting in this room and you're like, man, unless these hearts radically change and there's ownership over their own sin and failings, there's no hope for this thing. And then I've sat in the room in, in marriage counseling where there has been huge humility. Yeah, I have not been a man that has followed after the Lord. I have not led my family. I have let my wife down, and I just, even if she doesn't love me anymore, I'm going to do whatever I can to lead her and to serve her and to care for her because I want to do what's right by my family and by the Lord. And I always have hope for that person because God can do amazing things when our hearts are at a place of humility. I've sat with high schoolers who have literally the week before been arrested for breaking the law. And guess what their attitude is? It's not my fault. My parents shouldn't have called the cops. They're idiots. That cop, man, he was a jerk. I just can't wait to get out of here. Everything that's broken in my life, it's my family's fault, right? And then I've sat with other high schoolers who have done things so stupid you couldn't believe, but they get on the phone and they're like, man, I know I'm an idiot and I know I need the Lord and I wanna do what's right and I wanna make it right and I wanna honor the Lord, right? I will always take the humble idiot rather than the prideful fool. There's a difference. Proverbs 3.34 says this. It says, towards the scorners, he is scornful, talking about God, but towards the humble, he gives favor. 1 Peter 5.5 says, likewise, you who are younger, subject yourself to the elders. Close yourself, uh, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That should be a sobering verse for us, church. That for those of us who come in here and don't own our sin and are prideful, that we're literally arm wrestling the creator God of the universe, that God is standing in opposition to us, right? And we can't understand why nothing is working out in our lives and everything's so difficult. Our pride is setting us in opposition to God, but that he gives grace to the humble, right? Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Right, Jesus says there is no entrance into the kingdom of God. There is no relationship with God if there is not a heart that is poor in spirit. He's not talking about a financial condition. 
He's talking about a condition of the heart that is broken over their sin and is humble and is accepting the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we need the grace and power of God in our lives. Okay, here's the third attitude that's gonna keep you in the desert. It's this, um, I'm unwilling to deal with my sin. I'm unwilling to deal with my sin. This is the attitude of an unsurrendered heart. And here's the sad reality that today, I know for a fact in a room this size, there are people in this room who, who what you're saying is, is, listen, I know that there are things in my heart that are sinful. And I've got idols that I'm following. I've got addictions and habits that I know are not pleasing to the Lord. But the truth is, I'm not giving those things up. And you're listening to this message, you're pretending to be engaged, but the only thing you're feeling right now is get me out of this room because it doesn't matter what Pastor Cal says or, or what he is gonna try to convince me to do, I'm not moving on this. God, you can have some of my life, you don't get all of it, and I'm going to continue to pursue these things. I'm not going to deal with my sin. Fundamentally, won't do it. This is the heart of a lukewarm Christian. Revelation 3, 15 and 16, I know I read this a couple weeks ago. I want to remind you of it again. It says, I know your works. This is Jesus talking to a church. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Matthew 6, 24, it says, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other and will be devoted to one and despise the other. Okay, so listen, again, the Bible says that we will, because of our sin nature and the brokenness of this world, we're always going to sin and battle with sin and struggle against it on this side of eternity. Okay, but the Bible also says that there is no such thing as an unsurrendered follower of Jesus Christ. That this idea that, that, that I can go to church on the weekends and God can have some of me, but really I'm going to live for these other things and I want to have enough of Jesus to have my fire insurance, but he is not Lord of my life, that, that is a foreign idea to the New Testament. That a Christian worldview demands that we surrender every area of our life and say, God, you are Lord over it all. All right, look at verse nine as we close. It says this, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart, and I test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Okay, and I wanna close with this. I wanna close with three demands of a Christian worldview from this passage. Here's the first. Um, a Christian worldview demands that we own our sin. There has to be ownership of our sin today in this room. Do you see it in verse nine? It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Okay, so what ownership looks like is, is I understand that I come in guilty before the Lord. I understand that I make choices every day to elevate myself, to worship myself, to place myself at the center of my reality, that I do not live for the glory of the Lord and I confess those things and I want to repent and turn from that in my life. And here's another thing ownership means, and I need to go on a little bit of a rant here. Won't be too long, I promise. Ownership means that when we look at the brokenness of this world, that we take responsibility for that brokenness. Okay, here's what I mean. Um, so we've been going through this COVID pandemic for the last 18, 19, 20 months now. Um, I don't know if you guys have picked up on this. People have opinions on the, on the pandemic. Have you realized that? Like people have had opinions on vaccines and masks and social distancing. Like there's been a, a lot of people saying a lot of things. Uh, you know what I haven't heard very much of, if at all? I haven't heard this from Christians. 
man is sin devastating. Man, is this pandemic really sobering me up to the sin in my own heart? Because again, what a secular worldview would say is that the only reason things happen are because of physical reasons. It's because of a lab in Wuhan or a bat that got eaten at a market. That's how the pandemic happened. That's not what a Christian worldview says. Christian worldview says that everything is broken in our world because of sin. That the world, that the earth is groaning and longing for God to redeem and restore the world and defeat sin. That everything broke because we rebelled from God. That the reason for this pandemic is ultimately, at its roots, a spiritual issue. Like when a hurricane hits in Louisiana. Guess what I hear a lot from people, especially in West Michigan? Man, I'm glad I don't live in Louisiana. Isn't it nice to live in pure Michigan where we don't get tornadoes and hurricanes and all those natural disasters? We're so smart for living in Michigan, right? What I don't hear is, man, what a visible picture of the devastation of sin on our world. That God would create storms that massive and that devastating to try to open our eyes to how devastating it is when we reject the creator's rightful place in this universe and in our lives and try to do things on our own strength. He's trying to show us how devastating it is to live like this. I'm tired of hearing Christians put God on trial and say, when I look at all the bad things in the world, I don't know if I can believe God is good. None of that is God's fault. It was never his ideal. All of that is the result of our sin. We don't get to blame God for the things we've done, amen? We need to own it. Second thing we see is that God sits in the place of judgment. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart, and I test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Christian worldview demands that we are not the judge, that it's not what we think, and what we think is best, and what we want for us is the ultimate level of authority, but it is, God, that we stand under his authority. And then the third is, is there has to be confession and repentance of sin. There has to be. Look at 1 John 1. Uh, eight and nine, it says this. It says, if we have no sin, listen to this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay, let me break that down very, very clearly. If anyone walks into this room today and you don't believe that you have sinned or that there's sin in your life, it says you're lying to yourself. You're not a Christian. That's what First John is saying. But if we confess our sins, listen to this. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see God's heart revealed in that passage? He's saying, listen, there's a way out of the desert. That God's saying, I haven't left you to your sin. I haven't left you to the devastation that your choices create. That I've always wanted this for you and you can have it again. And the way out of the desert is confession and repentance of sin that we be honest with God and with others about what's going on in our lives. There's another passage in the New Testament that says if we confess our sins with our mouth, that God will heal us from our unrighteousness, that God will do a transforming work in our heart, and the way that process kicks off is we've gotta say out loud what's happening. We confess it to God, we confess it to one another, and then we turn and do the best in our power through the power of the Holy Spirit to honor the Lord with our life. And he says, right now, today, I can start that transforming process and I can give you everything that I want for you. God's given us a way out of the wilderness, but you'll never enter it if you don't do the honest and humble work of owning and acknowledging and confessing your sin 
and turning from it. Sin, according to the Christian worldview, is something we have to take seriously. So here's what I want to do as we close. I want to close with this one question. It's this. Where's the trajectory of your life leading you? Like, this is something that I can't answer for you. This is something that maybe even your spouse can't answer for you. This is something that you can only answer in your heart as you walk in here, right? God says he sees our hearts in one or two ways, as a tree planted by streams or as a shrub in the wilderness that should see no good thing. How do you walk in here? Which one are you? Can you worship the Lord with honesty because you have a heart that surrendered to him and there's confession and repentance and dealing with your sin or are there things that you're holding on to that need to get unloaded today? Church, we have to be a church if we're gonna live for the glory of God and be vertical and experience God's blessing. We have to be a church that, that embraces the difficult moments of dealing with our sin. It's where healing and life and joy is found. But if we hide it, if we neglect it, if we blame others for it, we're going to continue to stay in the same place of devastation. So here's what I want you to do. I just wanna give you a moment and I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And we're gonna close a little bit differently this morning. Um, we're not going to stand together and respond in a song of worship, but we have a song of kind of renewal and repentance that Taylor and uh, Priscilla are gonna sing over us this morning. And uh, I just want to carve out some time five minutes, six minutes for you to be able to meet with the Lord. And there's some of you right now, you need to confess some things before God. That there's some things that you come in here with that are heavy on your heart and you know that there is unconfessed, unrepented sin that is jamming up your relationship with God. What better moment than right now to confess those things. What better moment than right now than to step in what God would have for you and experience the joy, life, and forgiveness that the gospel freely offers us. There's some of you that you're gonna have to maybe hang out with a pastor after the service and have a conversation. Had three or four of those last night. It was really, really powerful. There's some of you you're gonna have to um, open up in small group this week or call your small group leader or call a friend or make a phone call or have a conversation with your spouse on the way home from church. Like, let's be a church that deals with this. Let's not go through the motions. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word. God, I just pray that you would do a work that only you can do. God, I acknowledge that I can plead and I can argue and I can reason and I can try really hard, but I don't have any power to change a heart in this place. But God, your power is unlimited and your spirit is alive and you transform hearts and you make broken things whole and dead things come alive again. God, you make all things new. I pray that you do that renewing work in our hearts right now. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.